Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today in the show... People of overnight, some people arrived this morning at the refugee processing centre and said that You know, they slept in their cars because they weren't able to reach borders in time. The conflict in the Nagorno-Karabakh region between Armenia and Azerbaijan continues to escalate. We have all the details. Also, advocates start to push the New South Wales government to ban native forest logging. And later today... For a lot of health practitioners, usually the triage process can be quite a long one. So it can take sort of four, two to four weeks of clinical assessment to What Lola does is give us essentially the same information, like a risk indicator, within about 30 seconds. A new artificial technology is helping health workers to prepare better rehab programs. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. Today the report around the Disability Royal Commission has been released, with 222 recommendations for change across different areas such as education, employment and human rights. Over the last four and a half years, the Disability Royal Commission has heard the lived experiences of neglect and exploitation via inquiries, roundtables, public hearings, and community engagement activities. It's a historic day for the disability sector, but some are concerned about what will happen next. Green Senator for WA and spokesperson on disability services Georgian Steele John told National Radio News the Australian government needs to be accountable an act for a change. Well, the history of Australian governments in relation to Royal Commission, sadly, and really quite outrageously, is a history of commissioning them to investigate and then when the report is given, leaving the uh, recommendations to gather dust on a shelf within the bureaucracy. We've seen it with uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Uh, we've seen it with so many investigations over recent times and disabled people um, are determined We will not allow the Australian government to proceed in the same way uh, with this investigative report. I'm uh, more than happy for a politician to connect with the emotion um, of the content of this report. Um, and I think it's always important to show respect for disabled people. Uh, my demand and the demand of the community today is that that be followed up by concrete action. The investigation was the result of relentless Uh, campaigning by the disability community um, and today is a testament to the leadership advocacy and sheer determination of disabled people who have experienced violence abuse exploitation and neglect and I've got to say I'm, pr I'm very proud of what we have achieved for disabled people by disabled people um, and I am confident that all four million of us in this community 20% of the population uh, will continue to push for the transformation that we know is needed to end uh, and eliminate the segregated settings. I ask co-founder of Developing Australian Communities and National Disability Advocate River Knight why this report is so critical for Australians with disabilities. Well, what we're looking at is a 
climate within Australia where we have NDIS, we have politicians using it as an excuse on a political level to say, oh, the cost of disability support, you know, it's, you know, we can't afford this and why should we be investing money in this? Why should we be investing money in that? And why, you know, there's this understanding that the disability sector has that the rest of Australia just doesn't get to have access to. So when we have 4.4 million Australians and more living with disability, that's a huge number of Australians, more than 50% of people over 65 as well living with disability. So we need the Royal Commission to show Australia why it's so important that we value people with disability and why it's so important that we get this right because it's such a huge issue. A lot of people don't realise just how bad it can get when things are done wrong and when we remove those safeguards that should stop this stuff from happening. So as you know, there's been a lot of reporting on horrifying stories about the NDIS and the agencies towards Australians with a disability. And you mentioned that this is causing an intergenerational trauma in the sector. What changes do you think the NDIS needs to stop these issues from happening? Well, there's all the systemic work that needs to happen within the organisation to get it run well, because we're wasting a lot of time, money, resources on a system that's really broken. Um, we've taken a car manufacturing approach to scaling up a system that's supposed to be about individualizing plans and funding and supports for people living with disability. So what we want to see is a systemic change. But on the grassroots level, like today, tomorrow, what we need is all those safeguards that NDIS removed when it rolled in, put back in place. So when NDIS rolled out, we had millions and millions and millions of dollars taken away from advocacy groups around Australia. And that hasn't been replaced. And that, those advocacy groups were a great buffer to support people um, to try and help with those cases of abuse, neglect and trauma that, that they were being put through by service providers. We took away that buffer. It's been a long commission. I mean, it's been around four and a half years, as you mentioned. What can we expect after this report release? Are you hopeful there will be positive changes around the issues? Well, I can't imagine a world where we don't see change happening in this space because it's going to be very difficult for anyone in Australia to not look at this and, and see how important it is that we respond. But the thing that's really disappointing is that in this year's budget, for example, that was announced this year, knowing the Royal Commission recommendations were about to be released, there was no funding attached to implementing any of these recommendations. So in the disability sector, we're scratching our heads asking, does this mean that you're going to wait until June next year to put any resources into actually implementing these recommendations? And is this how you value actioning these things? Because some of those horror stories, some of the things that's happening right now to people with disability, where they're being harmed significantly, can't wait another day. Exactly. And um, lastly, what, what do you expect from the federal government in terms of change, I mean, besides the budget, for the benefit of Australians with a disability? What I want to see them do is look at the systems that they have in place and get back to basics. Get these human services approach back into a goal, an all-orientated program like NDIS, where we're supposed to be doing individualized support. That was National Disability Advocate River Knight. A group of disability representative organizations released a statement saying they will respond to the report at their own time. You can read the release on our website at thewire.org.au.
Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. The conflict in the Nagorno-Karabakh region between Armenia and Azerbaijan has escalated. Azerbaijan President Ilan Aliyev announced this week the restoration of his country's sovereignty over Nagorno-Karabakh and the self-declared republic will cease in January next year. The conflict has prompted more than half the region's Armenian population to flee out of potential ethnic cleansing by the Azerbaijani government. The Wire's Francis Du has the story. When powerful forces go to war, it's their people who suffer the most. This is the case for the Armenian citizens currently caught in the middle of the Nagorno-Karabakh dispute. This week, Michael Kolokosian, executive director of the Armenian National Committee of Australia, joined us from Guris, where he is part of the delegation of Australian parliamentarians visiting a refugee camp. The current situation on the ground is that there's uh, in Artsakh, the, the road from Artsakh to from the capital Stepanakia to Goris stretches for kilometres. It's kilometres long. The hour is, is over six hours. Some people are saying they're waiting seven hours to reach Goris. It's just bumper to bumper. And people have overnight, some people arrived this morning at the refugee processing centre and said that, you know, they slept in their cars because they weren't able to reach um, reach Goris in time. What he describes next is a harrowing scene of families stranded in cars without a place to sleep at night. Azerbaijan has opened the corridor, the Lachin corridor, after a nine-month blockade, and 30,000 people have, over the last three days, are just stranded in the streets of, of Goris. Like, I'm, I'm speaking to you now, and as I walk the streets of Goris, there is mothers with children in their arms. And... Uh, they are sleeping in their cars. I've never seen anything like this. While some might see this exodus as a move to safety, Michael's response hits home. For Armenians, it's an agonising loss of everything they hold dear and everything they've always known. These people have packed whatever it is they could on their cars. There's people with just one suitcase of luggage. There's people with mattresses on their, on the top of their cars. There's kids only carrying one bag of clothes. And I don't think for them this is an issue of, okay, now we're safe. This is an issue of, I've just lost everything. I've lost my homeland. I've lost my rights to self-determination, the right that I voted for, the right for, for me to be independent, for our people to be independent. Azerbaijani officials claim to have a plan for the civil integration of the Karabakh Armenian citizens. However, Dr. Lawrence Browers, a Caucasus expert from Chatham House in London, says it will be challenging to see a long-term presence of a stable community in Karabakh. There's been a lot of discussion about integration or reintegration, as Azerbaijan uh, likes to frame it. It's been very difficult to assess how credible this uh, intention is, because there's never been a white paper, a blueprint, a plan that has been discussed. And so... Uh, while it's clear that Azerbaijan does have a, a package, this is a package that has been elaborated without any consultation, without consultation with Azerbaijani civil society, without consultation with international partners, and without consultation, of course, with Armenians themselves. Following last week's military offensive, there have been meetings between Karabakh Armenian representatives and Azerbaijani officials, leading to agreements on humanitarian matters such as setting up a field hospital and deploying mobile medical teams. It seems there's now an effort to ensure Karabakh Armenians can stay, but this is happening in a context of historical anti-Armenian sentiments and narratives.
Michael Kolokosian again. If, if Azerbaijan uh, was uh, and did want to come to the negotiating table in, uh, in good faith, uh, they would remove their troops from the sovereign borders of Armenia. If Azerbaijan did want to come to the negotiating table in good faith, they would have adhered to the International Court of Justice and uh, not restricted the rights uh, of these people and opened the blockade. As in, they prevented people for nine months from having access to food, medicine, and health. And now you're going to say that we're going to give you those things? <laughs> How could anyone trust that? I think for any Armenian uh, to actually believe that, uh, they would be fooling themselves. Dr. Lawrence Browers emphasizes the need for ongoing interstate negotiations to prevent a resurgence of violence and aggression. Azerbaijan has, uh, over the last uh, three years, you know, experienced this sort of regular uh, surge of military activity and uh, of military victories. And I think that that can, you know, that can have an impact uh, on a regime's understanding of itself and of its legitimacy, and that can create a cycle, which is quite dangerous. Uh, so I think what's really crucial now is that the interstate level of the negotiations between Armenia and Azerbaijan continues uh, so that we don't see this expansion uh, and renewed violence. Associate Fellow at Chatham House, Dr. Lawrence Brown is there, speaking with The Wires, Francis Du. Listening to the WIA, Independent Current Affairs and Community, and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Sunbury, Victoria on Sunbury Radio 99.3 FM. And to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. controversy around the native forest logging in New South Wales continues. Environmental campaigners and activists claim the issue could be brought to an end through the courts. They claim it will be the best way since the state government is not listening and direct action and protest is the only way to go. The Wires contributor from River FM in Lismore, Sean O'Shaughnessy, has the story. New South Wales state forests have become a battleground. One woman, MJ Johnson, shared with me how she felt compelled to risk a great deal by chaining herself to a logging harvester. Talking on the Environmental As Anything show, she described how her protest ended in arrest. After I was taken off the machine, the police put me in the back of the police car and I just still remember vividly driving off, facing the forest and just looking at the loggers. Started work immediately while I was still in there as well, which was pretty confronting. Ms Johnson recently had her day in Lismore Court, where in the end the magistrate dropped all charges and dismissed her case. A point that MJ's solicitor, Eddie Lloyd, says was a positive sign that the legal tide is turning for forests. She said her defence was successful because in her case to the magistrate, she stressed cultural and social context. We referred to the Australian Institute poll that said 7 out of 10 Australians were wanting native forest logging to end. And the way I kind of pictured it was I said, over there in one corner you have MJ with all of these people, 7 out of 10 Australians, the citizens outside court here and right around Australia, all standing in one corner with MJ. And in the other corner, 
There's the government and they're standing alone. The state government position in terms of the forest is upheld in part by the New South Wales Minister for the Environment, Penny Sharp. In a statement, she says of the Great Koala National Park, the government is taking serious steps towards its creation and will work closely with the community, Aboriginal organisations and industry as the area for inclusion in the parks are assessed. But Gumbungir woman and campaigner Sandy Greenwood told me she isn't convinced the government is working closely with the ancestral custodians of Newry Forest. Newry State Forest in particular is, a, is culturally a traditional men's initiation area. Mm-hmm. So Gumbanga men would go there as a part of their initiation to go from boys to men. Mm-hmm. And also in that forest, we have the microbat. And the microbat is the Gumbanga men's totem. The statement released by Penny Sharp suggests that the government will immediately discuss with the Forestry Corporation of New South Wales the next steps for the cessation and determine timber supply options as well as a halt to logging operations in 106 koala hubs within the area being assessed for the park. But president of campaign group North East Forest Alliance, Dylan Pugh, says this falls short of what is needed. Uh, all they need to do is to direct the Environmental Protection Authority to change the logging rules. Uh, they can be changed by the EPA at their discretion. We presented the evidence of all these various changes they could make immediately that are justified within government reports. So instead of doing that, Penny is getting them to amend the protocol to only protect these minimal areas of um, uh, called Koala Hubs, which is a great climate park. The government statement released by both Environment Minister Penny Sharp and the Minister for Agricultural and Regional New South Wales, Tara Moriarty, says an expert environmental and cultural heritage assessment will be undertaken to safeguard the unique environmental and cultural heritage of the region. But Gumbungir woman Sandy Greenwood says there is little to give her confidence around the protection of cultural heritage. Unfortunately, a non-Gumbanga person who works for Forestry Corporation signed off on the Cultural Heritage Survey and said there was no cultural heritage in the the forest. So that's kind of caused the problem where we're at today, while we had the same country. Elsewhere, it was announced two years ago that in Western Australia, native forest logging would halt in 2024, while in May this year, Victoria also called it a day. Gecko is an organisation that has campaigned for 30 years against native forest logging in that state. And when I was in Melbourne, I met with Gecko's Fiona York, who described how citizen science and a wave of court cases brought victory for their forest protection campaign. So all of a sudden, here's this government-owned logging agency that is logging against the community's wishes and is making a massive loss because they keep getting sued by greenies. So... It just wasn't viable anymore. Right. And it was all based on citizen science. So gecko volunteers would be out in the bush trying to find crayfish in gullies in the middle of the night. They'd be spotlighting for greater gliders. They'd be recording it with GPSs and maps and all of that stuff. And that data would then go into the court cases and the court cases would have um, barristers and lawyers and they would, Vic Forest would just be smashed on these points of law. Mm. And, yeah, over a number of years and a number of really big high-profile losses, it just became, like, bad for them in the media and really bad for their bottom line. And Fiona York believes the lessons of Victoria can be applied to New South Wales, where the taxpayer is already heavily subsidising the native forest logging process and where a lot of interest will now focus on the multiple court cases ahead. River FM's Sean O'Shaughnessy with that report. Have you checked out The Wire? 
It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. You may have had work-related injuries and have taken a lot of time between GPs to be diagnosed. Also, the recovery time might be long if not done properly. A new artificial intelligence technology is already helping health workers across Australia to assess which rehab programs are the best for patients. Lean on Leaning Assistance, or LOLA for short, is bringing already positive outcomes, and I ask Head of Innovation at Arriva Group, Michelle Barrett, what's LOLA? In a nutshell. Sure. So LOLA, or Lean On Learning Assistance, is an artificial intelligence technology. So what we did was created a machine learning tool that can predict recovery outcome, uh, cost and duration of rehabilitation services for people with physical or mental health conditions. So uh, in which way will LOLA support healthcare workers in diagnosis and rehab programs? I think the, the key benefit of LOLA is in what we tend to call triage. So for a lot of health practitioners, usually the triage process is, can be quite a long one. So it can take sort of four, two to four weeks of clinical assessment to sort of get to a point where you understand the complexity of the situation and you can sort of know that best process for that client. What LOLA does is give us essentially the same information, like a risk indicator, within about 30 seconds. So it's much quicker. Um, it also allows us to be one step ahead because what we can do then is we can allocate to um, the most appropriate clinician at the time rather than, um, you know, I guess that's when you don't have that technology, you're sort of, you're operating a bit more blind. And what sort of conditions will Lola help health workers to diagnose and evaluate rehab programs so far? Um, so a range of different conditions, so um, everything from sort of musculoskeletal conditions, so um, you know, if you think about things like back pain, sprains, strains. Um, uh, we're also using LOLA with people with primary psychological conditions, so things such as major depressive disorder, generalizing anxiety disorder, and PTSD as well. And what are the outcomes you've seen so far with LOLA? Do you, are there any statistics that you can uh, provide us with? Yeah, so Lola's um, actually had pretty outstanding results. We, we've seen around a 35 to 45% improvement in health outcome for participants who went through the Lola protocol versus those who did not go through the protocol. So what we're finding is it's um, a combination of our efforts as clinicians. So, you know, you've obviously got health professionals who are evidence-based and know what they're doing. And you combine that with artificial intelligence. So it's called augmented intelligence. Uh, and it's absolutely creating a great uplift in health outcomes for our clients, um, whilst also supporting our clinicians really to do their best work. So who can have access to this technology at this at this point, and will it be available to more people in the future? Yes, it certainly will be. So at the moment, um, we've just finished piloting it across multiple areas in our rehab management business, which is a workplace rehabilitation corporate health service uh, provider that sits under the Reaper Group parent company. So certainly coming into the rehab management business as a client, you will experience Lola. <laughs> and what about GPs? Not at the moment, no. So at the moment, it's really sitting more in an allied health space, not in a, a primary medical space. Ah, okay. Excellent. Yeah, so more um, say psychologists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, exercise physiology, 
Um, so, yeah, more that space rather than doctors. All right, excellent. And um, is there any website where we can get more information about this technology? Yeah, sure. Go to www.rehabmanagement.com.au and you can find out more. That was Head of Innovation at Arriba Group, Michelle Barrett. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagera countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.